Well, we are in our second week of the study of the book of Joshua, and together we're taking stock of the lessons that we can learn from Joshua as he led the people of God into the promised land of Canaan. As you know, Joshua had been groomed for leadership under Moses. He had been in Egypt. He had crossed through the Red Sea, and he was the only other person who was allowed to go partway up the mountain with Moses when Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. And Joshua was a military man. He was a mighty warrior, skilled in the tactics of battle. The book of Joshua tells us the story of how the people of God took possession of the land of plenty and blessing. The people of Israel were moving to possess the land God had promised to Abraham's descendants. And under Joshua, God finally brought the people into the land. However, the people of God soon found out that the land could be theirs only when they walked in obedience under God's direction and when they depended on God's strength and not on their own strength. The lessons we learn from Joshua help us in our own walk with God today. Last week, we learned that God called Joshua to be Moses' successor. As God prepared Joshua to lead the people into the promised land, he reminded Joshua that he would be with him just like he had been with Moses. He promised never to leave Joshua or to forsake him. And God told Joshua to have strength and courage as he assumed the mantle of leadership. God was preparing Joshua for the leadership of his people. And Moses had poured into Joshua everything that he knew. Moses modeled for Joshua how to live a life of obedience to God. The training that Joshua got came from watching Moses day after day after day. Who are you watching for your models of leadership? Are they men or women who walk closely with God? Can they teach you and can they take you to the next level of your leadership development? And who is watching you as their model for leadership? Is it your grandchildren or your children? Is it someone at work or is it someone younger that you volunteer alongside of here at Anderson Hills? You see, every single one of us is a leader and we are all meant to grow in our leadership capacity year after year as we grow in our service to the Lord. And we are meant to raise up the next generation of leaders for God too. God is busy preparing you for the rest of your life. And he is preparing you for the leadership role that he has laid out for you we can learn some lessons from Joshua. First, Joshua was used greatly by God, but it was never for Joshua's own sake. It was always for the glory of God. Glory always belongs to God alone. 
And second, as you might imagine, there can be some pitfalls to leadership. Two of the most common fit, fit, easy for me to say, two of the most common pitfalls are insecurity and ego. Insecurity tells you that it is your job to please everyone else. And so you go around always trying to keep everybody around you happy. And you know that that is an impossible task. And it is exhausting. Ego tells you that it's everyone else's job to please you. But as we will learn from Joshua, a proper view of who we are and of who God is is the antidote to these two pitfalls of leadership. In the very beginning of the book of Joshua, I can just imagine that Joshua may have suffered from the pitfall of insecurity. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine being the man who had to follow in the footsteps of Moses? I mean, Moses was a great leader, under Moses, God had shown his great power in the ten plagues that finally convinced the Pharaoh, who was the most powerful man in the whole world at that time, to let the Hebrew slaves go, releasing them from their bondage. Under Moses, God had given the law to the people, appearing to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. Through Moses, God had performed many signs and wonders. And then Moses died, and Joshua became his successor. What lay on the other side of the Jordan River was a land that was already possessed by a number of different peoples. And they lived in fortified cities that would not be easy to conquer. Yeah, I can imagine that Joshua could have suffered from the pitfall of insecurity but God began to raise the level of respect for Joshua among the people. The people agreed to do whatever Joshua commanded them to do from the Lord. They said that they would obey Joshua just as they had obeyed Moses. Joshua carefully followed the commands of God, and he successfully got the nation of Israel across the Jordan. Now, this was no small task. I mean, we are talking about an entire nation crossing over a river. And also, the crossing of the Jordan occurred at the time of the year when the Jordan was at its flood stage. But as the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant and stepped down into the river, the water parted and stood like heaps and all the people crossed over on dry land. Now, maybe Joshua as a leader might have begun to get a little puffed up about his victory, don't you think? I mean, after all, Moses was a really great leader, but he hadn't been able to finish getting the people into Canaan. Joshua had scored this victory, and what a miracle occurred to allow the victory to happen. It's a miracle reminiscent of the crossing of the Red Sea. God parted the waters of the Jordan River while it was at flood stage. 
he dried up the land on the bottom of the riverbed so that all the men and the women and the children and the livestock could safely get across. And all the while that they were crossing, the priests were standing there carrying the Ark of the Covenant, standing on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed so that the water would stay cut off upstream and downstream. I might imagine that Joshua would have been pretty pumped up with his own leadership after witnessing this spectacular event. But let's see what happens. Once the whole nation had safely gotten across the river, God gave Joshua some additional instructions. Joshua was to choose 12 men, one from every one of the 12 tribes of Israel, And they were each to get one large stone from the middle of the Jordan riverbed and carry it out of the river and up onto the shore. Joshua set these 12 stones up together in the camp where the nation spent the night in Gilgal. The stones were stacked there as a kind of monument. But they were not a monument to Joshua They were a monument to God. They were set up so that in future times, whenever someone would look at that pile of stones and say, why are those there? It would give the people an opportunity to tell the amazing thing that God had done right there. Parents were to instruct their children on how God delivered the people across the river with a mighty sign. You see, a Jewish father was not to send his questioning child to a Levite priest for answers to his questions. No, the father was to answer the questions and instruct his children himself. In the same way, each of us is a leader, and we are tasked with passing on the Christian faith to our children and to our grandchildren, answering their questions and instructing them in the faith. Also, our lives are like standing stones. For you see, when other people look at us and they see the way we live our lives, when they see how we praise God, what we are thankful for, what God has brought us through, what he has delivered us from, it gives us the chance to tell the story about how God has been active in our life and why we see him active in our lives today, and why we can trust that he will remain active and faithful in our lives into the future. Hearing this morning some of the stories of how God has been at work in the lives of those who have gone through the healing school. Thank you, Bruce, for sharing today and all the others. Hearing how God has healed some of them of physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual needs, and how God has used their prayers to do the same thing in other people who have come to them for prayer is like a standing stone. It's a story that gets to be told and not to bring attention to ourselves, but to bring glory to God. It is always, always, always about bringing glory to God. 
The parents in Israel were to tell their children, these stones are here so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And so the Israelites entered the promised land. And the task that is ahead of them is to take total possession of that land. Now Jericho was the largest city near the point where the Israelites had crossed over the Jordan and to where they had been camping at Gilgal. Jericho probably seemed like it should be the first city that the Israelites should try and capture. Yet no divine message had yet come to Joshua about what to do next. I can imagine that Joshua, though, went out to check on Jericho himself. Can't you just see it? Maybe he was strategizing in his mind how his military men and what they would need to do to capture it. I mean, even by the time of Joshua, Jericho was an ancient city. Historians believe it was founded around six or 7,000 B.C., This city had walls all the way around it that seemed invincible. They were 25 feet tall and 20 feet thick. Soldiers patrolled the walls, and they could see for miles around the countryside. There was no way for a surprise attack. That would be impossible. And Joshua's army, they didn't have any sophisticated military equipment designed to break down city walls or bust through city gates, no battering rams, no catapults. They had arrows and spears and slings, which would be pretty useless in use to breach those walls. Here's what happens next. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua comes face to face with the commander of the Lord's army, and something sparks inside of Joshua and convinces him that this is no mortal soldier. Like Abraham entertaining angels, or Jacob wrestling all night with a man. There was a flash of revelation, and Joshua knew that he was in the presence of the Lord. Joshua immediately fell to the ground and worshipped because he had a proper understanding of his place in relation to God's place. I mean, worship is all about God, right? In true worship, we give everything that we are to God. Why? Because God is worth it. Because God is worthy. Joshua is told to take off his shoes because the ground upon which they are on is holy. It was the presence of God who is holy that sanctified that spot. And clearly... This visible manifestation of God makes us call to mind the time that God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and told Moses to take off his sandals because the ground 
was holy. Joshua asked the Lord what message he has for him. Kind of a speak, Lord, for your servant is listening moment. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. God tells Joshua that he had given Jericho into Joshua's hands. The city, its king, and its army would fall to Israel. And the verb tense in Hebrew of the phrase, I have delivered, describes a future action as if it has already taken place. In other words, since God has declared it, you know that the victory is sure to happen. That battle plan must have sounded pretty unusual to Joshua. I mean, there is no mention of any instruments of war or weapons that they were to use. I mean, what was going to stop Jericho's army from raining arrows down on the Israelite army that was circling around the city walls? What was to stop Jericho's army from rushing out of the city gate and ambushing Israel's army? I can imagine that some of these questions must have passed through Joshua's mind. Yet unlike Moses, who questioned God about his ability to confront Pharaoh, Joshua didn't question God's plan at all. Instead, Joshua lost no time in calling together the priests and the soldiers and passing along to them the directions that he had received directly from the Lord. No longer feeling insecure or like he had to please everyone, Joshua confidently tells his soldiers and the priests the battle plan as it has been given to him by God. And for six days in a row, the Israelite army marched in complete silence, except for the sound of the seven ram's horns, around the wall of the whole city of Jericho. How strange that must have looked to the curious soldiers' eyes who were peering down from on top of the wall. I mean, no city had ever been taken in such an unusual manner as this. I wonder, did the Jericho soldiers make fun of Israel from up there on the wall? Did they ridicule them down below? Did they yell, what are you trying to do, make us laugh so hard that we have to surrender? But Joshua and Israel were faithful and obedient. They never wavered in carrying out God's battle plan. On the seventh day, the army and the priests with the Ark of the Covenant and blowing ram's horns marched around Jericho seven times. And after the seventh circle around the city, the clear voice of Joshua rang out, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And while the priests blasted the trumpets, all the people gave a loud shout and the walls of the city 
fell to the ground. The men of Israel climbed over the debris of the wall and found the inhabitants of Jericho inside paralyzed with terror and unable to resist. And so Jericho was utterly destroyed that day, all except for Rahab and her family. You see, she had been protected by the two spies from an earlier story. And in exchange, the two spies agreed to spare her and her family when they took the city if she hung a scarlet cord in her window. Rahab was an unlikely hero, a prostitute, the Bible tells us. Yet she was also a woman who feared the Lord and who chose to put her trust in God. And so Rahab and her family were saved, and they went to live among the people of Israel. And Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, puts Rahab in the lineage and genealogy of Jesus Christ. She was the great-great-grandmother of King David. You see, God had a mission for Rahab. And she knew that her mission wasn't to please other people. And she knew that other people didn't exist to please her. She did not let her past define her. She chose to put her future in the hands of the Lord. She knew her mission was to be obedient to God and to bring glory to God. God has a mission for you, too, and a mission for me. And our mission is to glorify God in everything we say and do. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us that we are created for God's glory. Isaiah 48, 10 and 11 says that when we are refined, even in our suffering, we are to glorify God. John 14, Jesus tells us that we can ask for anything in prayer, and he will do it so that our Father in heaven will be glorified. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us to do everything we do for the glory of God. Imagine being set free from the pressure of believing that you exist in order to please everyone else. I mean, wouldn't that be liberating? And imagine being free from the pressure of believing that the whole world revolves around you. I think sometimes we all need to get freed from the mindset that we are the center of the universe. I mean, maybe the vastness of the universe and our tininess in comparison attest to this fact. I mean, no one gazes up at the vastness of the Milky Way and thinks, hey, I'm the most important person in the world. <laughs> and no one stands in front of the magnificence of the Grand Canyon or gazes upon the vast expanse of the ocean and says, wow, I'm all that and a bag of chips. I mean, we are not the main character in history. History is actually his story. And Joshua recognized who he was and who God is, and he bowed down and worshipped. Where in your life are you making it all about you? And have you even come to realize yet that it's not all about you? God has a mission for you. 
And it isn't about you. It's about him. God has healing and hope in store for you. And God can cause whatever walls seem impenetrable in your life, the ones that stand between you and all that God has in store for you, and he can make them come a tumbling down. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your mighty works. We thank you for the story of Joshua and Jericho, how you promised to always be with him, how Joshua recognized his place before you and worshiped you. Thank you for your power that makes the walls in our lives come tumbling down. Thank you for Jesus Christ who split the veil of the temple in two so we can come straight to you as we pray and that you promise to answer our prayers so that you would be glorified. God, use us, all that we are, all that we say, all that we do, our eating, our sleeping, our waking, our going to bed, our working, our teaching. Use it all, God, to your glory. And all God's children said, Amen.